battles of the past define the present. This is Shields High. Who was the greatest general of all time? Some of you are probably thinking or perhaps even saying out loud what your answer would be to that question. Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, Hannibal Barca, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, perhaps Ulysses S. Grant or Douglas MacArthur. These are men who had a tactical and strategic understanding of the battlefield that changed the course of history. People understand and agree that whatever you think of them, whatever side they were on at the time, these were men who were excellent at their craft of warfare and who made an enormous impact on history. Who was the most fearsome warrior of his age? All time. Again, I'm sure some of you have answers that immediately come to mind. Leonidas, king of Sparta and famous because of the movie 300, perhaps for many, but known all throughout the ages. Vasily Zaitsev, the Soviet sniper. U.S. Marines, Carlos Hathcock during Vietnam. Or if you want to go back a little bit in history, Vercingetorix. The Gallic chieftain who fought fiercely but unsuccessfully against Julius Caesar, also on the list. Maybe even Hernan Cortez in his campaign against the Aztecs. Fearsome warriors, people that you think of as not only leaders of men in battle, but also excelling in the craft, the tactical fighting aspect. People that were on the front lines, that were combatants. They weren't just in the back with the gear in the rear. And let's add one more category to this. Impact. This would be those great men of the military in the past whose actions directly led to history-changing and era-defining moments, battles that changed the tide of history. The Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, for example. Scipio Africanus of ancient Rome defeating Hannibal Barca to end the Second Punic War. So we're talking about three things here. Great military leaders, skilled warriors, and men who changed history. So the greatest generals, the most fearsome warriors. What if I told you that there's someone that I would argue should be on the list? Maybe not the top of the list, but should be on the list, especially if you combine a great commander with a great warrior who absolutely changed the course of history. Genghis Khan would fall into that category and he changed the world, no question about it, and conquered a larger empire than by landmass anyone else in human history. But what about a fellow that you've probably never even heard of named... Romaga. Now you're probably thinking, what the heck is Buck talking about? Who, who is Romaga? And why does it sound like he's ordering a fancy bottle of wine out on a date? I'm going to explain to you who this incredible warrior was and why his role in history should be something that a lot more people know about. But first, from our sponsor, I want to tell you that, you know, free Wi-Fi when you're out in public seems super convenient. I use it sometimes, too. And it gives you faster access to the Internet and you got no data usage charges on your phone bill. But with all that benefit comes a risk. There are bad actors out there who are just waiting to gain access to your data. 
Some cyber criminals have figured out ways to access your data and your devices on these free Wi-Fi services. And others are even more clever. They'll set up dummy free Wi-Fi in public areas like coffee shops or sporting events, and you end up connecting without ever even suspecting it until it's too late. There's a way to protect yourself, though, in circumstances like this. It comes from ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN provides you with a virtual private network. That's what a VPN is. And when you use ExpressVPN, you're using the most advanced user-friendly one possible. It provides a layer of privacy and encryption protection on your cell phone and all your devices. So whether you're sending an email or making a purchase, no one can see what you're up to, not the cyber thieves and not even the big tech folks out there who are spying on everything you're doing. This service is not expensive. It runs just a little over six bucks a month. And for that, you could protect yourself and five of your other devices, your laptop, your computer, your phones, your tablets. Keep what's private, private. Keep it for yourself online. Sign up right now at expressvpn.com slash buck, and you'll get three extra months free on an annual plan. Expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. Now back to Romaga. Romaga factors into our story here. Because he was perhaps the greatest known warrior of his era as a naval captain on the Mediterranean Sea in the Knights of Malta, then known as the Knights of St. John or the Knights Hospitaller. And if you look at his life after the fall of Constantinople, leading up to the great siege, the great Battle of Malta, of which he was one of the primary participants at the command level, as well as on the front lines as a soldier. And then at the great Battle of Lepanto that turned back the Ottoman advance in 1571, after uninterrupted conquest, stretching back for decades, you realize that this guy Romaga, we should know more about him. And when you look at his life story, when you look at what was going on around him and the role, the direct role that he played in it, he changed the course of the most profound civilization-molding conquest of over a thousand years, the Islamic conquest of the Near East, North Africa, and Europe. Were it not for Romaga, his knights, and the brave but mercurial Christian forces alongside him at Malta and then at Lepanto, the Islamic conquest would have stretched deep into the heart of Europe, changing the world we know. And you need to know his tale. But first, I have to give you some of the backstory here. We left you in the last Shields High, 1453, the fall of Constantinople, the death of the emperor of Constantinople. Rarely do you see a major city like this, a great city that stood for a thousand years, lost and also the leader killed in battle as an active combatant. That's what happened. This was a calamity for Christendom. Nobody ever really thought that Theodosian walls could be taken down. Nobody ever really thought that they could storm this, the single most strategically located city of the ancient world. There's a reason why this was at one point a city estimated to have up to a million inhabitants at a time when other major European cities would have had in the tens of thousands before it was even thought of as Europe. Constantinople was the great gateway to the East, and it was also the single most important symbol of 
Eastern Orthodox Christianity in the world at that time. They thought of themselves as Romans. They thought of themselves... And so this was the greatest city, really, in Western civilization at the time, and it fell to the Ottoman Turks. This is terrifying for Europe at the time. And then a string of conquests after it that showed this was the great bulwark of Christianity. The city of Constantinople was holding back the Ottoman horde, actually a word that comes from the Ottoman massive armies of the time. And so once it fell, not only was there an imminent land threat to Christianity, but there was the very real prospect that the Mediterranean Sea was going to turn into an Ottoman lake. With that, not only would there have been the unsurpassed wealth accrued. I mean, the Ottoman Empire knew that trade at this time was only really possible and profitable by sea route. You couldn't move bulk spices and silks and all these incredibly valuable goods from the East coming as far away as India and China. The famous Silk Route, people think of the Silk Road. The only way to distribute those goods to the West was by ship through the Mediterranean Basin. And some of the greatest arable land at the time in places like the Nile uh, Delta of Egypt, the distribution of those goods, which were necessary for keeping many city states around the Mediterranean alive and fed, was only possible by ship. If you wanted to be a great and wealthy nation at the time, you had to have access to the sea. And the Ottomans, with the seizure of Constantinople in 1453, put themselves in a place where under the banner of Islam, they could spread not only across all of Christendom deep into Europe, but seize the entirety of the Mediterranean Sea. And that was the plan. Now, to some, this might sound a little bit exaggerated. You don't learn this in school. They're not going to teach you about this. In fact, all you really learn about this period from the Islam-Christianity perspective and these wars and conflicts is there were these really terrible things called the Crusades, and there was the spread of this new religion that just popped up, and no big deal, some stuff happened, the Reformation in Europe, and then uh, let's just jump to the New World. That's generally what you get taught in school about this, right? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, you know, what was also happening in 1492, the Ottomans were planning the conquest of all of Europe. And in fact, it was Columbus's patrons, the king and queen of Spain, who were the only real kingdom that could try to match up sword for sword against the Ottoman threat. But all you have to do to understand the scale of the threat to Christendom, to its eradication, was to look at the string of conquests that came in succession. After Mehmet II, the Ottoman Sultan was victorious at Constantinople in 1453. He immediately pushed deeper into Europe. By 1459, what is now Serbia was conquered by the Ottomans. In 1463, they took Bosnia. In 1478, Albania was taken. Now, it's worth noting that during this period of rapid westward Ottoman expansion, the only European power that was doing anything to really slow the advance of the Ottomans were the Venetians. 
the Stato de Mar, they call it, the state of the sea. For that's exactly what Venice in the mid to late 15th century was. Usually great cities are only situated on fantastic geographic locations with, yes, access to the water. But the great cities of antiquity also needed nearby arable land and fresh water to drink. Not so for the Venetians. This is a place that I'm sure you think of now as perhaps a romantic getaway. It is lovely, the canals, the history. But what you might not gather from buying some Venetian glass as a tourist there today, and the somewhat pungent smells you may come across there with the open canals in the summer, is that Venice was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And in the 15th century, it was operating a true maritime empire, setting up way stations, naval bases, trading ports, all along the eastern Mediterranean in places like Corfu and Negroponte. And it was a republic led by a doge and a senate, where the rule of law was generally considered fair but severe. All deals were to be kept, and profit was the most important purpose of day-to-day life. The Venetians were traders. They merely wanted to expand insofar as it helped the bottom line. They wanted to make money. And because they made all their money moving goods on the sea, they were expert sailors. As a result of their commercial interests, their reach stretched as far as the shores of the Black Sea. And the Venetians, much to the chagrin of their uh, European Christian counterparts, had no problem at all trading with the Muslims. Whoever could get the best goods at the best price in the best place. Or whichever sultan or vizier controlled the trade route on pain of death for anyone violating it, it didn't matter to the Venetians. They just wanted trading partners. They sought wealth, not war. But as we've seen all throughout history, you can't pursue trading interests without having men with clubs, swords, and later on guns to stop people from plundering them. Notably in the Mediterranean, pirates. The Mediterranean Sea, despite what people may think because of all the movies about the high age of piracy in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean Sea is the great cradle of piracy as well as civilization. There were entire cultures built upon piracy, entire cities constructed and adorned with the plunder and booty taken from other cultures from other places all around the Mediterranean. In fact, the very term piracy comes from the ancient Greek word for to attempt, as in to attempt to steal. One of the great accomplishments of Alexander the Great back in the 4th century BC was curbing piracy around ancient Greece. In fact, the ancient seafaring people, the Phoenicians, are best known to us today for the Phoenician alphabet, which we use and was the precursor to ancient Greek written language. But they were best known at the time as fearsome pirates. And I'm sure some of you remember back in history class, you may have heard briefly about how in 75 BC, Silesian pirates in the Aegean Sea grabbed a guy uh, named Julius Caesar. And this didn't turn out so well for those Silesian pirates. Caesar wasn't afraid of them at all. In fact, he thought their initial ransom demand was too low. He said, I'm worth more. 
and he told them that he was good for the money. He, in fact, offered to help arrange for the ransom himself. Julius Caesar settled in with these pirates and befriended them, but from time to time he would make a joke about how one day he was going to have them all crucified. They would laugh uneasily at this. After a little over a month in captivity, Caesar was set free after the ransom was in fact delivered, and then Caesar went back to Miletus and raised a naval force. He wasn't actually even a military official at the time, went out, found the pirates camped on an island, brought them back in chains, and then did in fact have them all crucified. Julius Caesar was not messing around. So the Mediterranean, in a sense, is the greatest, largest pirate cove in all of human history. And you can't understand trade without understanding piracy and vice versa. This also led the Venetians, bringing us back up now into the 15th century, to become not only able sailors, but also to be fearsome warriors on the sea. They would often rely on mercenaries for their ground forces, or the Italians would bring on someone called a condottiere, essentially a mercenary warlord, a a paid military expert who would run their affairs for a given campaign. But it was only the Venetians after Constantinople who were in regular contact with the Ottomans on the sea and had any hope, any prayer of pushing back on the Ottoman navy. Unfortunately, the tiny Venetian state with a relatively small population, a minuscule land force and just built atop, I mean, the actual state of Venice was in a lagoon on a series of shoals. The Venetians didn't do well in their first battles with the Ottomans. From 1463 to 1479, they lost Negroponte on the east coast of Greece, Lemnos, Albania Venete, they lost a number of important way stations for trade. And in fact, with some periods of calm in between, the Ottoman-Venetian Wars would extend all the way up until the early 1700s. But let's just turn our attention for a moment to how big a threat in the 1470s, 80s, and, and into the beginning of the 16th century, the early 1500s, how big a threat was the Ottoman Empire which was clearly the largest, wealthiest, and to those not a part of it, most menacing state in the world, how big a threat were the Ottomans really to Christian Europe in this period? As I've said, in uh, our own schoolrooms and in our textbooks, there's really very little focus put on this. Our attention is immediately shifted westward to Columbus, the discovery of the New World, and the Age of Exploration. Maybe learn a little bit about King Henry VIII in the early 16th century. And then in 1517, Martin Luther, the Reformation, he nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that's pretty much the history you learn then. For whatever reason, and there are a number that I can come up with off the top of my head, what you don't learn about in school is the enormous expansion of the Muslim Ottoman territory through conquest that occurs from 1453, pretty much unbroken until 1565 in the Siege of Malta. You're talking about nearly a century of nothing but conquest for the crescent moon of Islam and losses for all of Christendom at that time. And it should be noted that this was a period of highly brutal warfare where captives were routinely slaughtered. Even after negotiations for cities 
with the promise of safe conduct from the Sultan himself, sometimes he would change his mind, decide that everyone's going to get their heads chopped off or everybody would be impaled. A real punishment where an individual was hoisted atop a spear and then slowly dies, which the Ottomans specialized in. And later on, you would come to know a fellow named Vlad the Impaler, the basis for the Dracula legend, who took this Ottoman practice and used it back against them. But a quick look at the scorecard in the late 15th century shows you that Europe was in deep trouble. The Ottomans were seizing Eastern European territories seemingly at will with each campaigning season. And there was no power on land in Christendom that seemed that it would ever be able to stand up and beat the Ottomans in open battle. On land, the situation of the Christian states felt increasingly hopeless. At sea, ever since the defeat of Constantinople in 1453, the Ottoman navy had become the preeminent power in the region as well. This was even more troubling because that meant that even Italy itself was open to invasion. The seat of Christendom at the time in Rome, home of the Pope, could in fact be invaded by these Ottoman forces. And in fact, they came much closer to this than pretty much everybody these days realizes. In 1480 AD, Ahmed Pasha took the city of Otranto on the southeast tip of Italy. This was explicitly done to set up a beachhead for a full-on invasion and takeover of Italy. They were going to take Rome. They were going to take the Pope prisoner, conquer the heart of Christendom itself. Yeah, something I don't think anybody really learns these days. And I think we probably should. The only reason this project was abandoned, they successfully took Otranto on the Italian coast, but the Ottoman forces withdrew from this forward operating base because the Sultan Mehmet II died. Europe got lucky here. But it didn't last long. In 1512, Selim the Grim takes over as Sultan, and then the Ottomans continue the conquest. 1517, they take Egypt. And then some very interesting things start happening on the north coast of Africa, which we know best as the Barbary Coast, right? To the shores of Tripoli, my friends. We know about the Barbary War the United States fought in around 1800. Well, it was 300 years before that that two brothers became known to history as Brothers Barbarossa, Redbeard, would, after humble origins as the sons of a potter in the Aegean Islands, make their way into the service of pirates and then get involved in a series of coups and conquests in the north of Africa that would end with the younger of the two brothers. Uruk was the elder. He ended up getting killed. But Hyradin, the younger, in charge of Algiers, but he realized that his grip on power there was tenuous. So what do you do when you're a pirate who has seized a kingdom you can't control, but you're in a very strategic position in the Mediterranean and you want to make sure that the biggest, baddest, toughest guys are going to be on your side? You offer up this new kingdom or you offer up the title of Sultan of Algiers to the Ottoman Sultan, Selim I, Selim the Grim, and ask for his protection. And that's exactly what Herodin Barbarossa did. Later on, this Barbarossa would become the chief admiral of the entire Ottoman fleet and a scourge to all of Christendom. In fact, Barbarossa became 
a tale that parents would tell their children along the Mediterranean in Christian lands to terrify them. He, he was a boogeyman. And the reason for this is that there was a system of slavery throughout the Mediterranean at this time that was incredibly widespread, and Barbarossa would constantly go on slaving missions along the coasts of Spain and Italy and the islands around them. Now, this is a very important dynamic to understanding what's going on here and leads up to these epic battles like the Siege of Malta and the Battle of Lepanto in 1565 and 1571, respectively. We're certainly going to talk about those battles, but just for a moment here, I got to talk to you about something else, and it's our sponsor, Bambi, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations— And HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day, all for just $99 a month. It's month to month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Just go to Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E, Bambi.com slash effortless right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash effortless, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, Bambi.com slash effortless. Now back to Shields High. 1492, we think of it as the year of Columbus, but it was also the year of the expulsion of the Moors from Spain, from the Iberian Peninsula. Many thousands of Muslim inhabitants were told that they had to leave and go across the Strait of Gibraltar and resettle in the Muslim lands of what is today's North Africa. And this led to a tremendous bitterness that would play out in battles for decades to come. The expelled Muslim inhabitants became known to the Spaniards as Moriscos. And they brought with them to North Africa a sense of betrayal and hatred of the Spanish, of the Christians, and also, even more importantly, detailed knowledge of the fortresses, harbors, fortifications, customs, and ways of their hated enemy, the Christians. Many of these Moriscos would join in the service of pirate kings like Barbarossa, who, in order to extend their wealth and control, would raid coastal towns and take hundreds, even as many as a thousand at a time, of Christian captives intended for the harems and for the rowing benches of the galleys. You have to remember that during this period, piracy wasn't just about grabbing stuff. It was also about grabbing people. Christian and Muslim alike would grab the people from the opposite religion wherever they could on the open seas and then force them into slavery. For the women, the harem was often the place that they were sent in the Muslim lands. But for the able-bodied men, it was either the mines, general servitude in a domestic context, or most of all at this period, galley slaves. 
Now, why did they need galley slaves? You have to remember that they didn't have particularly advanced sailing ships at this time. What they had were really just advances over the ancient technology of the Greek trireme. Galleys and their variations were mostly oar propelled. They did have sails, but the sailing rigging wasn't particularly adept at dealing with bad or weak winds. And so the fastest and most maneuverable way to get around was oar power. And you needed a lot of human beings chained down below deck two benches moving these massive oars in unison. That is how warfare and trade galleys got around at the time. And as you can imagine, this was an absolutely miserable and often short-lived existence. The galley slaves were chained to their oars where they were. They ate and slept at their benches. If they became too fatigued, they would be whipped. If they did not continue to row once they had been whipped, they would simply be thrown overboard to drown. A large galley in the 15th and 16th century could require a few hundred rowers, oarsmen, at one time. This also meant there was a constant menace on board. If you had a Muslim galley with entirely Christian rowers chained below deck, during that fateful moment of battle, if one or two of them could get unshackled and get to their co-religionists, they would incite a slave mutiny and happily mutilate and kill the people who had been whipping them and chaining them for weeks, perhaps months beforehand, and be reunited with their co-religionists who would then free them. Of course, on the other side of this equation, you can imagine that whether it was Ottomans with a large number of immiserated Christian captives below deck or Christian sea captains who had captured Muslims that they were putting to inhumane use. When the tide of battle turned and the ship began to sink, they didn't care what happened to the men chained to those oars below deck. They drowned en masse. Indeed, galley warfare in the 15th and 16th century was a brutal, nasty, and short existence for thousands and thousands of men impressed into the service of the religious group that they hated. And thus, the stakes for capture on the high seas were unthinkably high, whether you were traveling on a merchant vessel or were a sailor or a crossbowman or arquebusier, the name for what was essentially a very early version of the rifleman, this was a soldier who used something called an arquebus, which was a precursor to the musket, so even less advanced than a musket. But it was a firearm in widespread usage in the 1500s that, with the help of a stand while aiming it, could be quite effective and quite deadly at limited range. The crossbow, of course, a medieval technology that was still in widespread usage because, well... It was faster to fire and a whole lot more reliable than the arquebus. Clearly, gunpowder was in military usage at the time, and there were cannons on board these military vessels, but the cannons were primitive, inaccurate, firing solid shot, and often as dangerous to the crew firing it as to the intended target. But these were the modern implements added to naval warfare, which, once you took away gunpowder and the improvements in armor and steel technology, 
was largely the same basic premise as it had been over a thousand years prior. As the captain of a galley ship engaged in a naval confrontation, you'd want to outmaneuver your opponent, fire missiles from distance to soften them up to weaken the hull if you could, then ram the ship for boarding, at which point the struggle turned to fierce hand-to-hand combat. Swords, axes, knives, halberds, scimitars, pikes, all the sharp-edged and blunt weapons you can think of used in hand-to-hand combat came into play during these galley battles. So this was the Mediterranean world and the backdrop for the rise of Barbarossa's pirate kingdom on the north coast of Africa. And this also brought the Ottoman sea battle to all of Europe's doorstep. With the Ottoman pirate Barbarossa on the open seas, no merchant vessel could be safe. No villager could sleep soundly at night along the coast of Italy, France, or Spain, knowing that at any moment Barbarossa's men could show up and kidnap him and his whole family, sell them into slavery, and disappear back out onto the sea before the Christian forces even received word of the raid. The noose was tightening around Europe. And all of the leaders, all the princes and monarchs, the Pope himself knew it. And then things got worse. Suleiman the Magnificent ascended to the Ottoman seat of power in the year 1520. And Suleiman, even more so than Selim the Grim, decided that it was time to crush all nearby opposition to Ottoman power. In 1521... During a campaign, Suleiman took the fortress city of Belgrade. And then in 1522, he himself commanded a momentous siege that would be a precursor, perhaps, to what we would see in 1565 in Malta. The Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, took the fortress at Rhodes. Rhodes was this island off the coast of what we think of as Asia Minor in antiquity, today's modern Turkey, And Rhodes had become the home of a famous order of warrior monks known as the Knights Hospitaller or the Knights of St. John. Of course, our friend Romaga is one of them, and we'll get to Romaga in just a moment. But what happened? How is it that it took until 1522 for Suleiman the Magnificent at the absolute height of Ottoman power, military prowess, and expansionism, that all of a sudden he has to turn his eye to an order of monastic knights that were a true relic of the Crusades. At this point, the Knights of St. John had been around for centuries, stretching back to the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the period in which the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller were the two most powerful fighting orders of the Christian warrior monks during the Crusades. Originally formed to provide, yes, protection and medical hospital services for those pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem and the Holy Land, the Knights Hospitaller were among the final Christians to leave during the reconquest of the Holy Land from the Crusaders, which culminated in the siege and fall of Acre in 1291. So the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights of St. John, same thing. They're not quite as famous as the Knights Templar because the Knights Templar, I think, were in that Dan Brown book or something, and people really get excited about the Knights Templar. 
The Knights Hospitaller left after the siege of Acre when the Muslim forces took that back. So now what we think of today as Israel, Lebanon, Syria, there were a number of crusader city-states there. Acre was the last one to fall, and so the Knights Hospitaller had to retreat, and they took to the island of Rhodes. Now, Rhodes is just off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and the Knights of St. John were able to conduct piracy and harassment of the Ottoman shipping, but the Ottoman navy was really nothing impressive. It took them quite some time. So the Knights of St. John were able to stay in Rhodes because the Ottomans were a land-based power. But then with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Ottomans had built a major navy and realized that naval power was essential to the ultimate conquest of Christendom. And so Suleiman says, these Knights of St. John, this nest of vipers, as the Ottomans thought of it, had to go. Brought a massive force estimated by historians at around 80 to 100,000 to a long siege of the Knights of St. John in Rhodes. And they were successful, but Suleiman allowed the knights, because they, they finally capitulated, allowed them to leave the island. He was particularly gracious on that occasion, something that would come back to haunt the Ottomans decades later. Once the great crusading order of the Knights of St. John had been kicked out of their home in Rhodes, they were given a number of forward operating bases by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Charles gave them the islands of Malta and nearby Gozo, another island that will factor into our tale here, as well as the city of Tripoli in what is today's Libya. This was not done out of the kindness of his heart. There was nobody as committed, fierce, and capable of fighting on land and sea at the time in the name of Christendom as the Knights of St. John. The Ottomans and their Barbary vassal states in North Africa were breathing down the neck of all the Christian coastal countries. And so Charles V, right in about 1530, decided to put the Knights of St. John directly on the front lines in harm's way, hoping that they would hold the Ottomans at bay. He couldn't realize how right he was. And it is into this cauldron of piracy, great power struggles, fanatical religious warfare on land and sea, that our story turns to the fearsome commander of uh, Christian forces and eventually the de facto leader of the Knights of St. John, the Grand Master of the Order, although he was a victim himself of some palace intrigue. We'll have to get to that later. But in 1528... A fellow by the name of Mazarin de Lescou, who would become called Mazarin Romaga, was born. Now, I might sometimes say Romagas because I kind of want to Americanize it the way that we took Notre Dame and made it Notre Dame. But in the French, it would be Romaga. And Romaga was a badass dude, let me tell you. Born to a rich, noble family in Gascony in uh, southern France. At the age of 18, he signed up for, became sworn to the Knights of St. John, the, the Holy Order, which by this point was already based off the island of Malta. Now, we don't know much about Romaga's 
period of life from his signing up for the Knights of St. John, who took a vow of chastity, poverty, and obedience to the order, and of course added into that a blinding hatred for what they viewed as the infidels, the Muslims, and particularly the Turks. But we know that Romagov became one of the many young apprentices on the Knights of St. John's galleys. He was constantly aboard ship for almost a decade or so from 1546 when he joined the order until 1555 or so, constantly at war with the various Ottoman-backed pirates and also engaging in no small share of his own piracy. The Knights of St. John had rich people who were donating to it, but it also was in constant search of its own additional funds. Galley warfare was a very difficult and expensive business, and Romaga and his compatriots would look for fat galleons full of treasure or spices and other very valuable commodities that they could plunder and pillage. And it only added to their delight that this, of course, enraged the Ottoman sultan who viewed himself not without reason as the single most important and powerful man on the entire planet. But Romaga became famous and starts appearing in some of the uh, written histories from the time because of what happened in the harbor of Malta in 1555. The chroniclers from the period talk about a freak storm, a kind of whirlwind on the sea that overturned a number of very large vessels. This included the galley that Romaga, at this point a senior captain of the Order of the Knights of St. John's Galleys, was sleeping in. The morning after the storm, with ships overturned, there were hundreds that had drowned, some still chained down below, others crushed as their massive ships turned over. But then there was something of a miracle. As the knights and villagers from the nearby town around Malta tried to save anybody who was still alive, they heard a tapping from the hull of an overturned ship. They cut a hole in the wood and out sprung a monkey. It was, in fact, the pet of Romaga, who kept a monkey on board ship with him as a companion. Because after all, what great pirate doesn't have a monkey, a parrot, some kind of exotic pet? But once they had taken the monkey to safety, then they realized that Romaga himself was still alive. He had managed to find a pocket of air up by the hull of the ship, and though it was overturned and everyone else on board had drowned or been crushed, Romaga found this air pocket and stayed alive in the cold water overnight for many hours in pitch black darkness. While Romaga would suffer what was believed to be permanent neurological damage, his hands were known to shake ever after this incident. Everybody after this thought, this is one tough dude. Because it was something of a miracle, the story spread far and wide among the order of the Knights of St. John and beyond. But among his fellow knights, and certainly the enemies who heard of him, Romaga's ordeal in that overturned ship became a symbol of who he was in the years to come. A fierce, unrelenting, tough-as-nails pirate. It was in the years preceding the Great Siege of Malta in 1565 
that Romaga solidified his reputation as the greatest sea wolf of Christendom. A crusader buccaneer driven by ideological fervor for the cross against the crescent and for the substantial riches and fame that came from life on the high seas as a pirate in the Mediterranean in the middle of the 16th century. In fact, Romaga was so good at what he did that the mere mention of his name would strike terror into the hearts of Muslims. Ottoman mothers would tell their children, be good or Romaga will come for you. And the kids were terrified. On the other hand, when Christians would hear that Romaga and his small fleet of four or five galleys and galleos, a smaller, faster reconnaissance style model of the larger oared galley ship, when they would pull into the port in order to take on provisions, peasants from all across the countryside would come down to pay their respects, bring food and thank Romaga for protecting them from the scourge of the Turk. It was said that nobody in the entire Mediterranean was as well acquainted with all of the coasts, the islands, every port, every creek. Romaga was a true master of his naval area of operations. He was considered fearless, brave, even in the most intense combat. In the written record, there's an incident where a galley belonging to a renegade from Calabria named Consign Yusuf, whom Romaga considered both an infidel and a traitor to Christendom, was surprised by the fleet of Romaga pulling up alongside for battle, and as was so often the case in galley warfare, turned into a fierce life-or-death competition. Twice the man under Romaga's command tried to board Consign's ship, and twice they were pushed back after suffering heavy casualties. Finally, Captain Romaga lost his patience, leaped across the water from his ship to Consign's galley, and shouted so all could hear, Consign, you old bastard, where are you? Here is Romaga. Yusuf replied, here is Consign, the son of the devil. And then a long, single combat ensued between Yusuf Consign and Romaga. After enough slashing and bashing, Romaga managed to outmaneuver and outthink Consign and knocked him into the galley slave's area below deck, where he was promptly ripped to pieces by the imprisoned Christians, overjoyed at the prospect of exacting revenge on their tormentor who had converted to Islam. 130 Turks were taken captive by Romaga after he told them that if they did not surrender forthwith, he would throw them all down to the Christian galley slaves below to be ripped apart limb from limb. Soon thereafter, the sea wolf of the Knights of St. John liberated the 200 Christian slaves who had been kept below deck by Consign. Romaga spent the early 1560s plundering and pillaging the Ottomans on the high seas. He was so skillful in this task and so trustworthy that La Valette, the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John on Malta, entrusted Romaga with two galleys that he funded out of his own pocket. But at this time of near ceaseless retreat for Christendom from the Islamic forces of the Ottoman Empire and the Barbary Coast on the Mediterranean Sea, it was the sea captain, Romaga, who constantly struck back at the hated Turk. His raids on the high seas were, relatively speaking, 
small affairs. A handful of his galleys with seasoned hardened sailors and infantrymen aboard would track and ambush targets of opportunity. Occasionally, these prizes were a great bounty. Some of the ships that Romaga seized had tremendous treasure, spices, and other valuable goods aboard. This was on top of the continuous need for more slaves to row the galleys. But it was Romaga's success in tracking such targets that led directly to the decision by the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent to launch what was supposed to be the beginning of the end of the Christian resistance to the Ottoman conquest. It would lead right to the very siege of Malta itself. It was in the summer of 1564, June of that year, when Romaga was cruising off the coast of Greece with his squadron of fearless Christian pirates, that he came upon a massive galleon, a treasure ship, with a small flotilla of the sultan's galleys to defend it. It turned out that the ship belonged to the chief eunuch in the sultan's court, a very powerful person within the Ottoman Empire. The galleon was taken back as a prize to Malta, where it sat in the harbor as a continuing insult to Suleiman himself. Romaga's summer of pillaging continued. Off the coast of the Anatolian Peninsula, he attacked and seized several Ottoman ships and took the governor of Cairo and the 107-year-old former nurse of Suleiman's daughter, Mirama, prisoner. They were returning from the pilgrimage to Mecca. Mere days after this, Romaga, off the coast of Alexandria, took the governor of Alexandria on his way to Constantinople to meet with the sultan. These naval escapades were taken as a slap directly in the face of the then most powerful man in the world, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Suleiman the Magnificent the nest of Christian vipers, the knights of St. John on this island of Malta had harassed him long enough. The Ottomans could never have true naval supremacy as long as Romaga and his kind were able to roam the sea. Suleiman made the decision to launch the full-scale assault that had been building for years, perhaps decades. He would once and for all destroy this remnant of the Crusades, the Knights of St. John on the island of Malta, and from there use it as a forward operating base for a direct assault on Sicily, on the Italian mainland, and then into the heart of Christendom itself. This campaign would come to be known as the Great Siege of Malta of 1565. And it will be our next episode, so be sure to subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show podcast wherever you listen to podcasts now. The battles of the past define the present. This is Shields High. 